What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Michael Scherer. Typee by Herman Melville Chapter 15 All the inhabitants of the valley treated me with great kindness. But as to the household of Marheo, with whom I was now permanently domiciled, nothing could surpass their efforts to minister to my comfort. To the gratification of my palate they paid the most unwearied attention. They continually invited me to partake of food, and when, after eating heartily, I declined the viands they continued to offer me, they seemed to think that my appetite stood in need of some piquant stimulant to excite its activity. In pursuance of this idea, old Marheo himself would hie him away to the seashore by the break of day, for the purpose of collecting various species of rare seaweed, some of which among these people are considered a great luxury. After a whole day spent in this employment, he would return about nightfall with several coconut shells filled with different descriptions of kelp. In preparing these for use, he manifested all the ostentation of a professed cook, although the chief mystery of the affair appeared to consist in pouring water in judicious quantities upon the slimy contents of his coconut shells. The first time he submitted one of these saline salads to my critical attention, I naturally thought that anything collected at such pains must possess peculiar merits, but one mouthful was a complete dose, and great was the consternation of the old warrior at the rapidity with which I ejected his epicurean treat. How true it is that the rarity of any particular article enhances its value amazingly. In some part of the valley, I know not where, but probably in the neighborhood of the sea, the girls were sometimes in the habit of procuring small quantities of salt, a thimbleful or so being the result of the united labors of a party of five or six employed for the greater part of the day. This precious commodity they brought to the house, enveloped in multitudinous folds of leaves, 
and as a special mark of the esteem in which they held me, would spread an immense leaf on the ground, and dropping one by one a few minute particles of the salt upon it, invite me to taste them. From the extravagant value placed upon the article, I verily believe that with a bushel of common Liverpool salt all the real estate in Taipei might have been purchased. With a small pinch of it in one hand, and a quarter section of a breadfruit in the other, the greatest chief in the valley would have laughed at all the luxuries of a Parisian table. The celebrity of the breadfruit tree, and the conspicuous place it occupies in a Taipei bill of fare, induces me to give at some length a general description of the tree, and the various modes in which the fruit is prepared. The breadfruit tree, in its glorious prime, is a grand and towering object, forming the same feature in a Marquesan landscape that the patriarchal elm does in New England scenery. The latter tree it not a little resembles in height, in the wide spread of its stalwart branches, and in its venerable and imposing aspect. The leaves of the breadfruit are of great size, and their edges are cut and scalloped as fantastically as those of a lady's lace collar. As they annually tend towards decay, they almost rival in the brilliant variety of their gradually changing hues, the fleeting shades of the expiring dolphin. The autumnal tints of our American forests, glorious as they are, sink into nothing in comparison with this tree. The leaf, in one particular stage, when nearly all the prismatic colors are blended on its surface, is often converted by the natives into a superb and striking headdress, the principal fiber traversing its length being split open a convenient distance, and the elastic sides of the aperture pressed apart, the head is inserted between them, the leaf drooping on one side, with its forward half turned jauntily up on the brows, and the remaining part spreading laterally behind the ears. The fruit somewhat resembles in magnitude and general appearance one of our citron melons of ordinary size. But unlike the citron, it has no sectional lines drawn along the outside. Its surface is dotted all over with little conical prominences, looking not unlike the knobs on an antiquated church door. The rind is perhaps an eighth of an inch in thickness, and denuded of this, at the time when it is in the greatest perfection, the fruit presents a beautiful globe of white pulp, the whole of which may be eaten with the exception of a slender core which is easily removed. The breadfruit, however, is never used, and is indeed altogether unfit to be eaten, until submitted in one form or other to the action of fire. The most simple manner in which this operation is performed, and I think the best, consists in placing any number of the freshly plucked fruit, when in a particular stage of greenness, among the embers of a fire, in the same way that you would roast a potato. After the lapse of ten or fifteen minutes, the green rind embrowns and cracks, showing through the fissures in its sides the milk-white interior. As soon as it cools, the rind drops off, and you then have the soft round pulp in its purest and most delicious state. Thus eaten, it has a mild and pleasing flavor. Sometimes, after having been roasted in the fire, the natives snatch it briskly from the embers, and permitting it to slip out of the yielding rind into a vessel of cold water, stir up the mixture, 
which they call boasho. I never could endure this compound, and indeed the preparation is not greatly in vogue among the more polite Taipees. There is one form, however, in which the fruit is occasionally served, that renders it a dish fit for a king. As soon as it is taken from the fire, the exterior is removed, the core extracted, and the remaining part is placed in a sort of shallow stone mortar, and briskly worked with a pestle of the same substance. While one person is performing this operation, another takes a ripe coconut, and breaking it in half, which they also do very cleverly, proceeds to grate the juicy meat into fine particles. This is done by means of a piece of mother-of-pearl shell, lashed firmly to the extreme end of a heavy stick, with its straight side accurately notched like a saw. The stick is sometimes a grotesquely formed limb of a tree, with three or four branches twisting from its body like so many shapeless legs, and sustaining it two or three feet from the ground. The native, first placing a calabash beneath the nose, as it were, of his curious-looking log steed, for the purpose of receiving the grated fragments as they fall, mounts astride of it as if it were a hobby-horse, and twirling the inside of one of his hemispheres of coconut around the sharp teeth of the mother-of-pearl shell, the pure white meat falls in snowy showers into the receptacle provided. Having obtained a quantity sufficient for his purpose, he places it in a bag made of the net-like fibrous substance attached to all coconut trees, and compressing it over the breadfruit, which being now sufficiently pounded is put into a wooden bowl, extracts a thick, creamy milk. The delicious liquid soon bubbles round the fruit, and leaves it at last just peeping above its surface. This preparation is called koku, and a most luscious preparation it is. The hobby horse and the pestle and mortar were in great requisition during the time I remained in the house of Marheyo, and Kori Kori had frequent occasion to show his skill in their use. But the great staple articles of food into which the breadfruit is converted by these natives are known respectively by the names of Amar and Poe Poe. At certain seasons of the year, when the fruit of the hundred groves of the valley has reached its maturity, and hangs in golden spheres from every branch, the islanders assemble in harvest groups, and garner in the abundance which surrounds them. The trees are stripped of their nodding burdens, which, easily freed from the rind and core, are gathered together in capacious wooden vessels, where the pulpy fruit is soon worked by a stone pestle, vigorously applied, into a blended mass of a doughy consistency, called by the natives tutau. This is then divided into separate parcels, which, after being made up into stout packages, enveloped in successive folds of leaves, and bound round with thongs of bark, are stored away in large receptacles, hollowed in the earth, from whence they are drawn as occasion may require. In this condition, the tutau sometimes remains for years, and even is thought to improve by age. Before it is fit to be eaten, however, it has to undergo an additional process. A primitive oven is scooped in the ground, and its bottom being loosely covered with stones, a large fire is kindled within it. As soon as the requisite degree of heat is attained, the embers are removed, and the surface of the stones being covered with thick layers of leaves, one of the larger packages of tutau is deposited upon them, and overspread with another layer of leaves. 
The whole is then quickly heaped up with earth, and forms a sloping mound. The tutau thus baked is called amar, the action of the oven having converted it into an amber-colored cakey substance, a little tart, but not at all disagreeable to the taste. By another and final process, the amar is changed into poi-poi. This transition is rapidly effected. The amar is placed in a vessel, and mixed with water until it gains a proper pudding-like consistency, when, without further preparation, it is in readiness for use. This is the form in which the tutau is generally consumed. The singular mode of eating it I have already described. Were it not that the breadfruit is thus capable of being preserved for a length of time, the natives might be reduced to a state of starvation. For owing to some unknown cause, the trees sometimes fail to bear fruit, and on such occasions the islanders chiefly depend upon the supplies they have been enabled to store away. This stately tree, which is rarely met with upon the Sandwich Islands, and then only of a very inferior quality, and at Tahiti does not abound to a degree that renders its fruit the principal article of food, attains its greatest excellence in the genial climate of the Marquesan group, where it grows to an enormous magnitude, and flourishes in the utmost abundance. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Michael Scherer. Typee by Herman Melville. Chapter 16 In looking back to this period, and calling to remembrance the numberless proofs of kindness and respect which I received from the natives of the valley, I can scarcely understand how it was that in the midst of so many consolatory circumstances, my mind should still have been consumed by the most dismal forebodings and have remained a prey to the profoundest melancholy. It is true that the suspicious circumstances which had attended the disappearance of Toby were enough of themselves to excite distrust with regard to the savages, in whose power I felt myself to be entirely placed, especially when it was combined with the knowledge that these very men, kind and respectful as they were to me, were after all nothing better than a set of cannibals, but my chief source of anxiety, and that which poisoned every temporary enjoyment, was the mysterious disease in my leg, which still remained unabated. All the herbal applications of Tenor, united with the severer discipline of the old leech, and the affectionate nursing of Cory Cory, had failed to relieve me. I was almost a cripple, and the pain I endured at intervals was agonizing. The unaccountable malady showed no signs of amendment. On the contrary, its violence increased day by day, and threatened the most fatal results, unless some powerful means were employed to counteract it. It seemed as if I were destined to sink under this grievous affliction, or at least that it would hinder me from availing myself of any opportunity of escaping from the valley. An incident which occurred as nearly as I can estimate about three weeks after the disappearance of Toby convinced me that the natives, from some reason or other, would interpose every possible obstacle to my leaving them. One morning there was no little excitement evinced by the people near my abode, and which I soon discovered proceeded from a vague report 
that boats had been seen at a great distance approaching the bay. Immediately, all was bustle and animation. It so happened that day that the pain I suffered having somewhat abated, and feeling in much better spirits than usual, I had complied with Cory Cory's invitation to visit the chief Mahavi at the place called the Tea, which I have before described as being situated within the precincts of the Taboo Groves. These sacred recesses were at no great distance from Marheyo's habitation, and lay between it and the sea, the path that conducted to the beach passing directly in front of the tea, and thence skirting along the border of the groves. I was reposing upon the mats, within the sacred building, in company with Mahavi and several other chiefs, when the announcement was first made. It sent a thrill of joy through my whole frame. Perhaps Toby was about to return. I rose at once to my feet, and my instinctive impulse was to hurry down to the beach, equally regardless of the distance that separated me from it, and of my disabled condition. As soon as Mahavi noticed the effect the intelligence had produced upon me, and the impatience I betrayed to reach the sea, his countenance assumed that inflexible rigidity of expression which had so awed me on the afternoon of our arrival at the house of Marheyo. As I was proceeding to leave the tea, he laid his hand upon my shoulder, and said gravely, Abo, abo, wait, wait. Solely intent upon the one thought that occupied my mind, and heedless of his request, I was brushing past him, when suddenly he assumed a tone of authority, and told me to moi, sit down. Though struck by the alteration in his demeanor, the excitement under which I labored was too strong to permit me to obey the unexpected command and I was still limping towards the edge of the pee-pee with Cory Cory clinging to one arm in his efforts to restrain me, when the natives around, starting to their feet, ranged themselves along the open front of the building, while Mahavi looked at me scowlingly, and reiterated his commands still more sternly. It was at this moment, when fifty savage countenances were glaring upon me, that I first truly experienced... I was indeed a captive in the valley. The conviction rushed upon me with staggering force, and I was overwhelmed by this confirmation of my worst fears. I saw at once that it was useless for me to resist, and sick at heart, I reseated myself upon the mats, and for the moment abandoned myself to despair. I now perceived the natives, one after the other, hurrying past the tea, and pursuing the route that conducted to the sea. These savages, thought I, will soon be holding communication with some of my own countrymen, perhaps, who with ease could restore me to liberty, did they know of the situation I was in. No language can describe the wretchedness which I felt, and in the bitterness of my soul I imprecated a thousand curses on the perfidious Toby, who had thus abandoned me to destruction. It was in vain that Cory Cory tempted me with food or lighted my pipe, or sought to attract my attention by performing the uncouth antics that had sometimes diverted me. I was fairly knocked down by this last misfortune, which, much as I had feared it, I had never before had the courage calmly to contemplate. Regardless of everything but my own sorrow, I remained in the tea for several hours, 
until shouts proceeding at intervals from the groves beyond the house proclaimed the return of the natives from the beach. Whether any boats visited the bay that morning or not, I never could ascertain. The savages assured me that there had not, but I was inclined to believe that by deceiving me in this particular, they sought to allay the violence of my grief. However that might be, this incident showed plainly that the Taipees intended to hold me a prisoner. As they still treated me with the same sedulous attention as before, I was utterly at a loss how to account for their singular conduct. Had I been in a situation to instruct them in any of the rudiments of the mechanic arts, or had I manifested a disposition to render myself in any way useful among them, their conduct might have been attributed to some adequate motive. But as it was, the matter seemed to me inexplicable. During my whole stay on the island, there occurred but two or three instances where the natives applied to me with the view of availing themselves of my superior information, and these now appear so ludicrous that I cannot forbear relating them. The few things we had brought from Nukahiva had been done up into a small bundle which we had carried with us in our descent to the valley. This bundle, the first night of our arrival, I had used as a pillow, but on the succeeding morning, opening it for the inspection of the natives, they gazed upon the miscellaneous contents as though I had just revealed to them a casket of diamonds, and they insisted that so precious a treasure should be properly secured. A line was accordingly attached to it, and the other end being passed over the ridge pole of the house, it was hoisted up to the apex of the roof, where it hung suspended directly over the mats where I usually reclined. When I desired anything from it, I merely raised my finger to a bamboo beside me, and taking hold of the string which was there fastened, lowered the package. This was exceedingly handy, and I took care to let the natives understand how much I applauded the invention. Of this package, the chief contents were a razor with its case, a supply of needles and thread, a pound or two of tobacco, and a few yards of a bright-colored calico. I should have mentioned that shortly after Toby's disappearance, perceiving the uncertainty of the time I might be obliged to remain in the valley, if indeed I ever should escape from it, and considering that my whole wardrobe consisted of a shirt and a pair of trousers, I resolved to doff these garments at once, in order to preserve them in a suitable condition for wear should I again appear among civilized beings. I was consequently obliged to assume the Taipei costume, a little altered, however, to suit my own views of propriety, and in which I have no doubt I appeared to as much advantage as a senator of Rome enveloped in the folds of his toga. A few folds of yellow tapa, tucked about my waist, descended to my feet in the style of a lady's petticoat, only I did not have recourse to those voluminous paddings in the rear, with which our gentle dames are in the habit of augmenting the sublime rotundity of their figures. This usually comprised my indoor dress. Whenever I walked out, I superadded to it an ample robe of the same material, which completely enveloped my person, and screened it from the rays of the sun. One morning I made a rent in this mantle, and to show the islanders with what facility it could be repaired, I lowered my bundle, and taking from it a needle and thread, proceeded to stitch up the opening. They regarded this wonderful application of science with intense admiration, and whilst I was stitching away, old Marheyo, who was one of the lookers-on, suddenly clapped his hand to his forehead, 
and rushing to a corner of the house, drew forth a soiled and tattered strip of faded calico, which he must have procured some time or other in traffic on the beach, and besought me eagerly to exercise a little of my art upon it. I willingly complied, though certainly so stumpy a needle as mine never took such gigantic strides over calico before. The repairs completed, old Marheyo gave me a paternal hug, and divesting himself of his maro, girdle, swathed the calico about his loins, and slipping the beloved ornaments into his ears, grasped his spear and sallied out of the house, like a valiant Templar arrayed in a new and costly suit of armor. I never used my razor during my stay in the island, but, although a very subordinate affair, it had been vastly admired by the Taipees. And Narmany, a great hero among them, who was exceedingly precise in the arrangements of his toilette and the general adjustment of his person, being the most accurately tattooed and laboriously horrified individual in all the valley, thought it would be a great advantage to have it applied to the already shaven crown of his head. The implement they usually employ is a shark's tooth, which is about as well adapted to the purpose as a one-pronged fork for pitching hay. No wonder, then, that the acute Narmany perceived the advantage my razor possessed over the usual implement. Accordingly, one day he requested as a personal favor that I would just run over his head with the razor. In reply, I gave him to understand that it was too dull, and could not be used to any purpose without being previously sharpened. To assist my meaning, I went through an imaginary honing process on the palm of my hand. Normandy took my meaning in an instant, and, running out of the house, returned the next moment with a huge rough mass of rock as big as a millstone, and indicated to me that that was exactly the thing I wanted. Of course, there was nothing left for me but to proceed to business, and I began scraping away at a great rate. He writhed and wriggled under the infliction, but fully convinced of my skill, endured the pain like a martyr. Though I never saw Narmany in battle, I will, from what I then observed, stake my life upon his courage and fortitude. Before commencing operations, his head had presented a surface of short, bristling hairs, and by the time I had concluded my unskillful operation it resembled not a little a stubble field after being gone over with a harrow. However, as the chief expressed the liveliest satisfaction at the result, I was too wise to dissent from his opinion. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Michael Scherer. Typee by Herman Melville. Chapter 17 Day after day wore on, and still there was no perceptible change in the conduct of the islanders towards me. Gradually I lost all knowledge of the regular recurrence of the days of the week, and sunk insensibly into that kind of apathy which ensues after some violent outbreak of despair. My limb suddenly healed, the swelling went down, the pain subsided, and I had every reason to suppose I should soon completely recover from the affliction that had so long tormented me. As soon as I was enabled to ramble about the valley in company with the natives, troops of whom followed me whenever I sallied out of the house, 
I began to experience an elasticity of mind which placed me beyond the reach of those dismal forebodings to which I had so lately been a prey. Received wherever I went with the most deferential kindness, regaled perpetually with the most delightful fruits, ministered to by dark-eyed nymphs, and enjoying besides all the services of the devoted Cory Cory, I thought that for a sojourn among cannibals no man could have well made a more agreeable one. To be sure there were limits set to my wanderings. Toward the sea my progress was barred by an express prohibition of the savages, and after having made two or three ineffectual attempts to reach it, as much to gratify my curiosity as anything else, I gave up the idea. It was in vain to think of reaching it by stealth, since the natives escorted me in numbers wherever I went, and not for one single moment that I can recall to mind was I ever permitted to be alone. The green and precipitous elevations that stood ranged around the head of the vale where Marheyo's habitation was situated effectually precluded all hope of escape in that quarter, even if I could have stolen away from the thousand eyes of the savages. But these reflections now seldom obtruded upon me. I gave myself up to the passing hour, and if ever disagreeable thoughts arose in my mind, I drove them away. When I looked around the verdant recess in which I was buried, and gazed up to the summits of the lofty eminence that hemmed me in, I was well disposed to think that I was in the happy valley, and that beyond those heights there was naught but a world of care and anxiety. As I extended my wanderings in the valley and grew more familiar with the habits of its inmates, I was fain to confess that despite the disadvantages of his condition, the Polynesian savage, surrounded by all the luxurious provisions of nature, enjoyed an infinitely happier, though certainly a less intellectual existence, than the self-complacent European. The naked wretch who shivers beneath the bleak skies and starves among the inhospitable wilds of Terra del Fuego might indeed be made happier by civilization, for it would alleviate his physical wants. But the voluptuous Indian, with every desire supplied, whom Providence has bountifully provided with all the sources of pure and natural enjoyment, and from whom are removed so many of the ills and pains of life, what has he to desire at the hands of civilization? She may cultivate his mind, may elevate his thoughts. These, I believe, are the established phrases. But will he be the happier? Let the once smiling and populous Hawaiian islands, with their now diseased, starving, and dying natives, answer the question. The missionaries may seek to disguise the matter as they will, but the facts are incontrovertible and the devoutest Christian who visits that group with an unbiased mind must go away mournfully asking, Are these, alas, the fruits of twenty-five years of enlightening? In a primitive state of society, the enjoyments of life, though few and simple, are spread over a great extent, and are unalloyed. But civilization, for every advantage she imparts, holds a hundred evils in reserve. The heart-burnings, the jealousies, the social rivalries, the family dissensions, and the thousand self-inflicted discomforts of refined life, which make up in units the swelling aggregate of human misery, are unknown among these unsophisticated people. 
but it will be urged that these shocking unprincipled wretches are cannibals. Very true, and a rather bad trait in their character it must be allowed. But they are such only when they seek to gratify the passion of revenge upon their enemies. And I ask whether the mere eating of human flesh so very far exceeds in barbarity that custom which only a few years since was practiced in enlightened England. A convicted traitor, perhaps a man found guilty of honesty, patriotism, and such like heinous crimes, had his head lopped off with a huge axe, his bowels dragged out and thrown into a fire, while his body, carved into four quarters, was with his head exposed upon pikes, and permitted to rot and fester among the public haunts of men. The fiend-like skill we display in the invention of all manner of death-dealing engines, the vindictiveness with which we carry on our wars, and the misery and desolation that follow in their train, are enough of themselves to distinguish the white civilized man as the most ferocious animal on the face of the earth. His remorseless cruelty is seen in many of the institutions of our own favored land. There is one in particular lately adopted in one of the states of the Union, which purports to have been dictated by the most merciful considerations. To destroy our malefactors piecemeal, drying up in their veins, drop by drop, the blood we are too chicken-hearted to shed by a single blow which would at once put a period to their sufferings, is deemed to be infinitely preferable to the old-fashioned punishment of gibbeting, much less annoying to the victim and more in accordance with the refined spirit of the age. And yet how feeble is all language to describe the horrors we inflict upon these wretches, whom we mason up in the cells of our prisons, and condemn to perpetual solitude in the very heart of our population. But it is needless to multiply the examples of civilized barbarity. They far exceed in the amount of misery they cause the crimes which we regard with such abhorrence in our less enlightened fellow-creatures. The term savage is, I conceive, often misapplied, and indeed when I consider the vices, cruelties, and enormities of every kind that spring up in the tainted atmosphere of a feverish civilization, I am inclined to think that so far as the relative wickedness of the parties is concerned, four or five Marquesan islanders sent to the United States as missionaries might be quite as useful as an equal number of Americans dispatched to the islands in a similar capacity. I once heard it given as an instance of the frightful depravity of a certain tribe in the Pacific that they had no word in their language to express the idea of virtue. The assertion was unfounded, but were it otherwise, it might be met by stating that their language is almost entirely destitute of terms to express the delightful ideas conveyed by our endless catalogue of civilized crimes. In the altered frame of mind to which I have referred, Every object that presented itself to my notice in the valley struck me in a new light, and the opportunities I now enjoyed of observing the manners of its inmates tended to strengthen my favorable impressions. One peculiarity that fixed my admiration was the perpetual hilarity reigning through the whole extent of the vale. There seemed to be no cares, griefs, troubles, or vexations in all Taipei, the hours tripped along as gaily as the laughing couples down a country dance. There were none of those thousand sources of irritation that the ingenuity of civilized man has created to mar his own felicity. 
There were no foreclosures of mortgages, no protested notes, no bills payable, no debts of honor in Taipee, no unreasonable tailors and shoemakers, perversely bent on being paid, no duns of any description, no assault and battery attorneys to foment discord, backing their clients up to a quarrel, and then knocking their heads together, no poor relations, everlastingly occupying the spare bedchamber, and diminishing the elbow-room at the family table, no destitute widows, with their children starving on the cold charities of the world, no beggars, no debtors' prisons, no proud and hard-hearted nabobs in Taipei, or to sum up all in one word, no money. That root of all evil was not to be found in the valley. In this secluded abode of happiness, there were no cross old women, no cruel step-dames, no withered spinsters, no lovesick maidens, no sour old bachelors, no inattentive husbands, no melancholy young men, no blubbering youngsters, and no squalling brats. All was mirth, fun, and high good humor. Blue devils, hypochondria, and doleful dumps went and hid themselves among the nooks and crannies of the rocks. Here you would see a parcel of children frolicking together the live-long day, and no quarreling, no contention among them. The same number in our own land could not have played together for the space of an hour without biting or scratching one another. There you might have seen a throng of young females, not filled with envyings of each other's charms, nor displaying the ridiculous affections of gentility, nor yet moving in whalebone corsets like so many automatons, but free, inartificially happy, and unconstrained. There were some spots in that sunny vale where they would frequently resort to decorate themselves with garlands of flowers. To have seen them reclining beneath the shadows of one of the beautiful groves, the ground about them strewn with freshly gathered buds and blossoms, employed in weaving chaplets and necklaces, one would have thought that all the train of flora had gathered together to keep a festival in honor of their mistress. With the young men there seemed almost always some matter of diversion or business on hand that afforded a constant variety of enjoyment. But whether fishing or carving canoes or polishing their ornaments, never was there exhibited the least sign of strife or contention among them. As for the warriors, they maintained a tranquil dignity of demeanor, journeying occasionally from house to house, where they were always sure to be received with the attention bestowed upon distinguished guests. The old men, of whom there were many in the vale, seldom stirred from their mats, where they would recline for hours and hours, smoking and talking to one another with all the garrulity of age. But the continual happiness, which so far as I was able to judge appeared to prevail in the valley, sprung principally from that all-pervading sensation which Rousseau has told us he at one time experienced, the mere buoyant sense of a healthful physical existence. And indeed in this particular the Taipees had ample reason to felicitate themselves, for sickness was almost unknown. During the whole period of my stay I saw but one invalid among them, and on their smooth, clear skins you observed no blemish or mark of disease. The general repose, however, upon which I have just been descanting, 
was broken in upon about this time by an event which proved that the islanders were not entirely exempt from those occurrences which disturbed the quiet of more civilized communities. Having now been a considerable time in the valley, I began to feel surprised that the violent hostility subsisting between its inhabitants and those of the adjoining Bay of Hapar should never have manifested itself in any warlike encounter. Although the valiant Taipees would often by gesticulations declare their undying hatred against their enemies, and the disgust they felt at their cannibal propensities, although they dilated upon the manifold injuries they had received at their hands, yet with a forbearance truly commendable they appeared patiently to sit down under their grievances, and to refrain from making any reprisals. The Hapars, entrenched behind their mountains, and never even showing themselves on their summits, did not appear to me to furnish adequate cause for that excess of animosity evinced towards them by the heroic tenants of our vale, and I was inclined to believe that the deeds of blood attributed to them had been greatly exaggerated. On the other hand, as the clamors of war had not up to this period disturbed the serenity of the tribe, I began to distrust the truth of those reports which ascribed so fierce and belligerent a character to the Taipei nation. Surely, thought I, all these terrible stories I have heard about the inveteracy with which they carried on the feud, their deadly intensity of hatred, and the diabolical malice with which they glutted their revenge upon the inanimate forms of the slain, are nothing more than fables and I must confess that I experienced something like a sense of regret at having my hideous anticipations thus disappointed. I felt in some sort like a prentice-boy, who, going to the play in the expectation of being delighted with a cut-and-thrust tragedy, is almost moved to tears of disappointment at the exhibition of a genteel comedy. I could not avoid thinking that I had fallen in with a greatly traduced people, and I moralized not a little upon the disadvantage of having a bad name, which in this instance had given a tribe of savages, who were as pacific as so many lambkins, the reputation of a confederacy of giant killers. But subsequent events proved that I had been a little too premature in coming to this conclusion. One day about noon, happening to be at the tea, I had lain down on the mats with several of the chiefs, and had gradually sunk into a most luxurious siesta, when I was awakened by a tremendous outcry, and starting up, beheld the natives seizing their spears and hurrying out, while the most puissant of the chiefs, grasping the six muskets which were ranged against the bamboos, followed after, and soon disappeared in the groves. These movements were accompanied by wild shouts in which Hapar, Hapar, greatly predominated. The islanders were now to be seen running past the tea, and striking across the valley to the Hapar side. Presently I heard the sharp report of a musket from the adjoining hills, and then a burst of voices in the same direction. At this the women, who had congregated in the groves, set up the most violent clamors, as they invariably do here as elsewhere on every occasion of excitement and alarm, with a view of tranquilizing their own minds and disturbing other people. On this particular occasion they made such an outrageous noise, and continued it with such perseverance, that for a while, had entire volleys of musketry been fired off in the neighboring mountains, I should not have been able to have heard them. 
When this female commotion had a little subsided, I listened eagerly for further information. At last, bang, went another shot, and then a second volley of yells from the hills. Again all was quiet, and continued so for such a length of time that I began to think the contending armies had agreed upon a suspension of hostilities, when pop went a third gun, followed as before with a yell. After this, for nearly two hours, nothing occurred worthy of comment, save some straggling shouts from the hillside, sounding like the halloos of a parcel of truant boys who had lost themselves in the woods. During this interval I had remained standing on the piazza of the tea, which directly fronted the Hapar Mountain, and with no one near me but Cory Cory and the old superannuated savages I have before described. These latter never stirred from their mats, and seemed altogether unconscious that anything unusual was going on. As for Cory Cory, he appeared to think that we were in the midst of great events, and sought most zealously to impress me with a due sense of their importance. Every sound that reached us conveyed some momentous item of intelligence to him. At such times, as if he were gifted with second sight, he would go through a variety of pantomimic illustrations, showing me the precise manner in which the redoubtable Taipees were at that very moment chastising the insolence of the enemy. Mahavi hana pepi nui hapar, he exclaimed every five minutes, giving me to understand that under that distinguished captain the warriors of his nation were performing prodigies of valor. Having heard only four reports from the muskets, I was led to believe that they were worked by the islanders in the same manner as the Sultan Solomon's ponderous artillery at the siege of Byzantium, one of them taking an hour or two to load and train. At last, no sound whatever proceeding from the mountains, I concluded that the contest had been determined one way or the other. Such appeared indeed to be the case, for in a little while a courier arrived at the tea, almost breathless with his exertions, and communicated the news of a great victory having been achieved by his countrymen. Hapar Puarva! Hapar Puarva! The cowards had fled. Cory Cory was in ecstasies, and commenced a vehement harangue, which, so far as I understood it, implied that the result exactly agreed with his expectations, and which, moreover, was intended to convince me that it would be a perfectly useless undertaking, even for an army of fire-eaters, to offer battle to the irresistible heroes of our valley. In all this I of course acquiesced, and looked forward with no little interest to the return of the conquerors, whose victory I feared might not have been purchased without cost to themselves. But here I was again mistaken, for Mahavi, in conducting his warlike operations, rather inclined to the Fabian than to the Bonapartian tactics husbanding his resources and exposing his troops to no unnecessary hazards. The total loss of the victors in this obstinately contested affair was, in killed, wounded, and missing, one forefinger and part of a thumbnail, which the late proprietor brought along with him in his hand, a severely contused arm, and a considerable effusion of blood flowing from the thigh of a chief who had received an ugly thrust from a hapar spear. What the enemy had suffered I could not discover, but I presume they had succeeded in taking off with them the bodies of their slain. Such was the issue of the battle, as far as its results came under my observation, and as it appeared to be considered an event of prodigious importance, 
I reasonably concluded that the wars of the natives were marked by no very sanguinary traits. I afterwards learned how the skirmish had originated. A number of the Hapars had been discovered prowling for no good purpose on the Taipi side of the mountain. The alarm was sounded, and the invaders, after a protracted resistance, had been chased over the frontier. But why had not the intrepid Mahavi carried the war into Hapar? Why had he not made a descent into the hostile vale, and brought away some trophy of his victory, some materials for the cannibal entertainment which I had heard usually terminated every engagement? After all, I was much inclined to believe that such shocking festivals must occur very rarely among the islanders, if indeed they ever take place. For two or three days the late event was the theme of general comment, after which the excitement gradually wore away, and the valley resumed its accustomed tranquility. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Michael Scherer. Typee by Herman Melville. Chapter 18 Returning health and peace of mind gave a new interest to everything around me. I sought to diversify my time by as many enjoyments as lay within reach. Bathing in company with troops of girls formed one of my chief amusements. We sometimes enjoyed the recreation in the waters of a miniature lake into which the central stream of the valley expanded. This lovely sheet of water was almost circular in figure, and about three hundred yards across. Its beauty was indescribable. All around its banks waved luxuriant masses of tropical foliage, soaring high above which were to be seen here and there the symmetrical shaft of the coconut tree, surmounted by its tuft of graceful branches drooping in the air like so many waving ostrich plumes. The ease and grace with which the maidens of the valley propelled themselves through the water, and their familiarity with the element, were truly astonishing. Sometimes they might be seen gliding along, just under the surface, without apparently moving hand or foot, then throwing themselves on their sides, they darted through the water, revealing glimpses of their forms, as in the course of their rapid progress they shot for an instant partly into the air. At one moment they dived deep down into the water, and the next they rose bounding to the surface. I remember upon one occasion plunging in among a parcel of these river nymphs, and counting vainly upon my superior strength, sought to drag some of them under the water, but I quickly repented my temerity. The amphibious young creatures swarmed about me like a shoal of dolphins, and seizing hold of my devoted limbs, tumbled me about and ducked me under the surface, until from the strange noises which rang in my ears, and the supernatural visions dancing before my eyes, I thought I was in the land of spirits. I stood indeed as little chance among them as a cumbrous whale attacked on all sides by a legion of swordfish. When at length they relinquished their hold of me, they swam away in every direction, laughing at my clumsy endeavors to reach them. There was no boat on the lake, but at my solicitation, and for my special use, some of the young men attached to Marheyo's household, under the direction of the indefatigable Kori Kori, brought up a light and tastefully carved canoe from the sea. It was launched upon the sheet of water, and floated there as gracefully as a swan. But, 
melancholy to relate, it produced an effect I had not anticipated. The sweet nymphs, who had sported with me before in the lake, now all fled its vicinity. The prohibited craft, guarded by the edicts of the taboo, extended the prohibition to the waters in which it lay. For a few days, Kori Kori, with one or two other youths, accompanied me in my excursions to the lake, and while I paddled about in my light canoe, would swim after me, shouting and gambling in pursuit. But I was ever partial to what is termed in the young men's own book, the Society of Virtuous and Intelligent Young Ladies, and in the absence of the mermaids, the amusement became dull and insipid. One morning I expressed to my faithful servitor my desire for the return of the nymphs. The honest fellow looked at me bewildered for a moment, and then shook his head solemnly, and murmured, Taboo! Taboo! Giving me to understand that unless the canoe was removed, I could not expect to have the young ladies back again. But to this procedure I was averse. I not only wanted the canoe to stay where it was, but I wanted the beauteous Fayaway to get into it, and paddle with me about the lake. This latter proposition completely horrified Cory Cory's notions of propriety. He inveighed against it, as something too monstrous to be thought of. It not only shocked their established notions of propriety, but was at variance with all their religious ordinances. However, although the taboo was a ticklish thing to meddle with, I determined to test its capabilities of resisting an attack. I consulted the chief Mahavi, who endeavored to dissuade me from my object, but I was not to be repulsed, and accordingly increased the warmth of my solicitations. At last he entered into a long, and I have no doubt a very learned and eloquent exposition of the history and nature of the taboo, as affecting this particular case, employing a variety of most extraordinary words, which, from their amazing length and sonorousness, I have every reason to believe were of a theological nature. But all that he said failed to convince me, partly perhaps because I could not comprehend a word that he uttered, but chiefly that for the life of me I could not understand why a woman should not have as much right to enter a canoe as a man. At last he became a little more rational, and intimated that, out of the abundant love he bore me, he would consult with the priests, and see what could be done. How it was that the priesthood of Taipei satisfied the affair with their consciences, I know not, but so it was, and Fayaway's dispensation from this portion of the taboo was at length procured. Such an event I believe never before had occurred in the valley, but it was high time the islanders should be taught a little gallantry, and I trust that the example I set them may produce beneficial effects. Ridiculous indeed that the lovely creatures should be obliged to paddle about in the water like so many ducks, while a parcel of great strapping fellows skimmed over its surface in their canoes. The first day after Fayaway's emancipation, I had a delightful little party on the lake, the damsel, Cory Cory, and myself. My zealous body-servant brought from the house a calabash of poe-poe, half a dozen young coconuts stripped of their husks, three pipes, as many yams, and me on his back a part of the way. Something of a load, but Cory Cory was a very strong man for his size, and by no means brittle in the spine. We had a very pleasant day. My trusty valet plied the paddle and swept us gently along the margin of the water, 
beneath the shades of the overhanging thickets. Fayaway and I reclined in the stern of the canoe, on the very best terms possible with one another, the gentle nymph occasionally placing her pipe to her lip and exhaling the mild fumes of the tobacco, to which her rosy breath added a fresh perfume. Strange as it may seem, there is nothing in which a young and beautiful female appears to more advantage than in the act of smoking. How captivating is a Peruvian lady, swinging in her gaily woven hammock of grass, extended between two orange trees, and inhaling the fragrance of a choice cigarro. But Fayaway, holding in her delicately formed olive hand the long yellow reed of her pipe, with its quaintly carved bowl, and every few moments languishingly giving forth light wreaths of vapor from her mouth and nostrils, looked still more engaging. We floated about thus for several hours, when I looked up to the warm, glowing, tropical sky, and then down into the transparent depths below, and when my eye, wandering from the bewitching scenery around, fell upon the grotesquely tattooed form of Cori Cori, and finally encountered the pensive gaze of Fayaway, I thought I had been transported to some fairy region, so unreal did everything appear. This lovely piece of water was the coolest spot in all the valley, and I now made it a place of continual resort during the hottest period of the day. One side of it lay near the termination of a long, gradually expanding gorge, which mounted to the heights that environed the vale. The strong trade wind, met in its course by these elevations, circled and eddied about their summits, and was sometimes driven down the steep ravine and swept across the valley, ruffling in its passage the otherwise tranquil surface of the lake. One day, after we had been paddling about for some time, I disembarked Cori Cori and paddled the canoe to the windward side of the lake. As I turned the canoe, Fayaway, who was with me, seemed all at once to be struck with some happy idea. With a wild exclamation of delight, she disengaged from her person the ample robe of tapa which was knotted over her shoulder, for the purpose of shielding her from the sun, and spreading it out like a sail, stood erect with upraised arms in the head of the canoe. We American sailors pride ourselves upon our straight, clean spars, but a prettier little mast than Fayaway made was never shipped aboard of any craft. In a moment, the tapa was distended by the breeze, the long brown tresses of Fayaway streamed in the air, and the canoe glided rapidly through the water and shot towards the shore. Seated in the stern, I directed its course with my paddle until it dashed up the soft, sloping bank, and Fayaway, with a light spring, alighted on the ground, whilst Cori Cori, who had watched our maneuvers with admiration, now clapped his hands in transport and shouted like a madman. Many a time afterwards was this feat repeated. If the reader have not observed ere this that I was the declared admirer of Miss Fayaway, all I can say is that he is little conversant with affairs of the heart, and I certainly shall not trouble myself to enlighten him any farther. Out of the calico I had brought from the ship, I made a dress for this lovely girl. In it she looked, I must confess, something like an opera dancer. The drapery of the latter damsel generally commences a little above the elbows, but my island beauties began at the waist, and terminated sufficiently far above the ground to reveal the most bewitching ankle in the universe. 
The day that Fayaway first wore this robe was rendered memorable by a new acquaintance being introduced to me. In the afternoon I was lying in the house, when I heard a great uproar outside. But being by this time pretty well accustomed to the wild halloos which were almost continually ringing through the valley, I paid little attention to it, until old Marheyo, under the influence of some strange excitement, rushed into my presence and communicated the astounding tidings, Marnu Pemi, which, being interpreted, implied that an individual by the name of Marnu was approaching. My worthy old friend evidently expected that this intelligence would produce a great effect upon me, and for a time he stood earnestly regarding me, as if curious to see how I should conduct myself. But as I remained perfectly unmoved, the old gentleman darted out of the house again, in as great a hurry as he had entered it. Marnu, Marnu, cogitated I, I have never heard that name before. Some distinguished character, I presume, from the prodigious riot the natives are making. The tumultuous noise drawing nearer and nearer every moment, while Marnu Marnu was shouted by every tongue. I made up my mind that some savage warrior of consequence, who had not yet enjoyed the honor of an audience, was desirous of paying his respects on the present occasion. So vain had I become by the lavish attention to which I had been accustomed, that I felt half inclined, as a punishment for such neglect, to give this Marnu a cold reception, when the excited throng came within view, convoying one of the most striking specimens of humanity that I ever beheld. The stranger could not have been more than twenty-five years of age, and was a little above the ordinary height. Had he been a single hair's breadth taller, the matchless symmetry of his form would have been destroyed. His unclad limbs were beautifully formed, whilst the elegant outline of his figure, together with his beardless cheeks, might have entitled him to the distinction of standing for the statute of the Polynesian Apollo, and indeed the oval of his countenance, and the regularity of every feature, reminded me of an antique bust. But the marble repose of art was supplied by a warmth and liveliness of expression only to be seen in the South Sea Islander, under the most favorable developments of nature. The hair of Marnu was a rich curling brown, and twined about his temples and neck in little close curling ringlets, which danced up and down continually when he was animated in conversation. His cheek was of a feminine softness, and his face was free from the least blemish of tattooing, although the rest of his body was drawn all over with fanciful figures, which, unlike the unconnected sketching usual among these natives, appeared to have been executed in conformity with some general design. The tattooing on his back in particular attracted my attention. The artist employed must indeed have excelled in his profession. Traced along the course of the spine was accurately delineated the slender, tapering, and diamond-checkered shaft of the beautiful Artu tree. Branching from the stem on either side, and disposed alternately, were the graceful branches drooping with leaves all correctly drawn, and elaborately finished. Indeed, this piece of tattooing was the best specimen of the fine arts I had yet seen in Taipei. A rear view of the stranger might have suggested the idea of a spreading vine tacked against a garden wall. Upon his breast, arms, and legs were exhibited an infinite variety of figures, every one of which, however, 
appeared to have reference to the general effect sought to be produced. The tattooing I have described was of the brightest hue, and when contrasted with the light olive color of the skin, produced an unique and even elegant effect. A slight girdle of white tapa, scarcely two inches in width, but hanging before and behind in spreading tassels, composed the entire costume of the stranger. He advanced, surrounded by the islanders, carrying under one arm a small roll of the native cloth, and grasping in his other hand a long and richly decorated spear. His manner was that of a traveller conscious that he is approaching a comfortable stage in his journey. Every moment he turned good-humouredly to the throng around him, and gave some dashing sort of reply to their incessant queries, which appeared to convulse them with uncontrollable mirth. Struck by his demeanour, and the peculiarity of his appearance, so unlike that of the shaven-crowned and face-tattooed natives in general, I involuntarily rose as he entered the house, and proffered him a seat on the mats beside me. But without deigning to notice the civility, or even the more incontrovertible fact of my existence, the stranger passed on, utterly regardless of me, and flung himself upon the further end of the long couch that traversed the sole apartment of Marheyo's habitation. Had the bell of the season, in the pride of her beauty and power, been cut in a place of public resort by some supercilious exquisite, she could not have felt greater indignation than I did at this unexpected slight. I was thrown into utter astonishment. The conduct of the savages had prepared me to anticipate from every newcomer the same extravagant expressions of curiosity and regard. The singularity of his conduct, however, only roused my desire to discover who this remarkable personage might be, who now engrossed the attention of everyone. Tinor placed before him a calabash of poe-poe, from which the stranger regaled himself, alternating every mouthful with some rapid exclamation, which was eagerly caught up and echoed by the crowd that completely filled the house. When I observed the striking devotion of the natives to him, and their temporary withdrawal of all attention from myself, I felt not a little piqued. The glory of Tamo is departed, thought I, and the sooner he removes from the valley the better. These were my feelings at the moment, and they were prompted by that glorious principle inherent in all heroic natures, the strong-rooted determination to have the biggest share of the pudding, or go without any of it. Marnu, this all-attractive personage, having satisfied his hunger, and inhaled a few whiffs from a pipe which was handed to him, launched out into an harangue which completely enchained the attention of his auditors. Little as I understood of the language, yet from his animated gestures and the varying expression of his features, reflected as from so many mirrors in the countenances around him, I could easily discover the nature of those passions which he sought to arouse. From the frequent recurrence of the words Nukahiva and Frani, French, and some others with the meaning of which I was acquainted, he appeared to be rehearsing to his auditors events which had recently occurred in the neighboring bays. But how he had gained the knowledge of these matters I could not understand, unless it were that he had just come from Nukahiva, a supposition which his travel-stained appearance not a little supported. But if a native of that region, I could not account for his friendly reception at the hands of the Taipees. 
Never, certainly, had I beheld so powerful an exhibition of natural eloquence as Marnu displayed during the course of his oration. The grace of the attitudes into which he threw his flexible figure, the striking gestures of his naked arms, and above all the fire which shot from his brilliant eyes, imparted an effect to the continually changing accents of his voice, of which the most accomplished order might have been proud. At one moment, reclining sideways upon the mat, and leaning calmly upon his bended arm, he related circumstantially the aggressions of the French, their hostile visits to the surrounding bays, enumerating each one in succession, Hapar, Puerca, Nukahiva, Tior, and then starting to his feet and precipitating himself forward with clenched hands and a countenance distorted with passion, he poured out a tide of invectives. Falling back into an attitude of lofty command, he exhorted the Taipees to resist these encroachments, reminding them, with a fierce glance of exultation, that as yet the terror of their name had preserved them from attack, and with a scornful sneer, he sketched in ironical terms the wondrous intrepidity of the French, who, with five war canoes and hundreds of men, had not dared to assail the naked warriors of their valley. The effect he produced upon his audience was electric. One and all they stood regarding him with sparkling eyes and trembling limbs, as though they were listening to the inspired voice of a prophet. But it soon appeared that Marnu's powers were as versatile as they were extraordinary. As soon as he had finished this vehement harangue, he threw himself again upon the mats, and, singling out individuals in the crowd, addressed them by name, in a sort of bantering style, the humor of which, though nearly hidden from me, filled the whole assembly with uproarious delight. He had a word for everybody, and, turning rapidly from one to another, gave utterance to some hasty witticism, which was sure to be followed by peals of laughter. To the females, as well as to the men, he addressed his discourse. Heaven only knows what he said to them, but he caused smiles and blushes to mantle their ingenuous faces. I am indeed very much inclined to believe that Marnu, with his handsome person and captivating manners, was a sad deceiver among the simple maidens of the island. During all this time he had never for one moment deigned to regard me. He appeared indeed to be altogether unconscious of my presence. I was utterly at a loss how to account for this extraordinary conduct. I easily perceived that he was a man of no little consequence among the islanders, that he possessed uncommon talents, and was gifted with a higher degree of knowledge than the inmates of the valley. For these reasons I therefore greatly feared lest having, from some cause or other, unfriendly feelings toward me, he might exert his powerful influence to do me mischief. It seemed evident that he was not a permanent resident of the Vale, and yet whence could he have come? On all sides the Taipees were girt in by hostile tribes, and how could he possibly, if belonging to any of these, be received with so much cordiality? The personal appearance of the enigmatical stranger suggested additional perplexities. The face, free from tattooing, and the unshaven crown, were peculiarities I had never before remarked in any part of the island, and I had always heard that the contrary were considered the indispensable distinctions of a Marquesan warrior. 
Altogether, the matter was perfectly incomprehensible to me, and I awaited its solution with no small degree of anxiety. At length, from certain indications, I suspected that he was making me the subject of his remarks, although he appeared cautiously to avoid either pronouncing my name or looking in the direction where I lay. All at once he rose from the mats where he had been reclining, and, still conversing, moved towards me, his eye purposely evading mine, and seated himself within less than a yard of me. I had hardly recovered from my surprise when he suddenly turned round, and with a most benignant countenance, extended his right hand gracefully towards me. Of course I accepted the courteous challenge, and as soon as our palms met, he bent towards me and murmured in musical accents, How you do? How long you been in this bay? You like this bay? Had I been pierced simultaneously by three hapar spears, I could not have started more than I did at hearing these simple questions. For a moment I was overwhelmed with astonishment, and then answered something I know not what, but as soon as I regained my self-possession, the thought darted through my mind that from this individual I might obtain that information regarding Toby, which I suspected the natives had purposely withheld from me. Accordingly, I questioned him concerning the disappearance of my companion, but he denied all knowledge of the matter. I then inquired from whence he had come. He replied from Nukahiva. When I expressed my surprise, he looked at me for a moment, as if enjoying my perplexity, and then with his strange vivacity exclaimed, Ah, mi taboo, mi go Nukahiva, mi go Tior, mi go Taipi, mi go everywhere. Nobody harm me, me taboo. This explanation would have been altogether unintelligible to me, had it not recalled to my mind something I had previously heard concerning a singular custom among these islanders. Though the country is possessed by various tribes, whose mutual hostilities almost wholly preclude any intercourse between them, yet there are instances where a person having ratified friendly relations with some individual belonging to the valley, whose inmates are at war with his own, may, under particular restrictions, venture with impunity into the country of his friend, where, under other circumstances, he would have been treated as an enemy. In this light are personal friendships regarded among them, and the individual so protected is said to be taboo, and his person, to a certain extent, is held as sacred. Thus the stranger informed me he had access to all the valleys in the island. Curious to know how he had acquired his knowledge of English, I questioned him on the subject. At first, for some reason or other, he evaded the inquiry, but afterwards told me that when a boy, he had been carried to sea by the captain of a trading vessel, with whom he had stayed three years, living part of the time with him at Sydney, in Australia, and that at a subsequent visit to the island, the captain had, at his own request, permitted him to remain among his countrymen. The natural quickness of the savage had been wonderfully improved by his intercourse with the white men, and his partial knowledge of a foreign language gave him a great ascendancy over his less accomplished countrymen. When I asked the now affable Marnu why it was that he had not previously spoken to me, he eagerly inquired what I had been led to think of him from his conduct in that respect. I replied that I had supposed him to be some great chief or warrior 
who had seen plenty of white men before, and did not think it worth while to notice a poor sailor. At this declaration of the exalted opinion I had formed of him, he appeared vastly gratified, and gave me to understand that he had purposely behaved in that manner in order to increase my astonishment, as soon as he should see proper to address me. Marnu now sought to learn my version of the story as to how I came to be an inmate of the Taipee Valley. When I related to him the circumstances under which Toby and I had entered it, he listened with evident interest. But as soon as I alluded to the absence, yet unaccounted for, of my comrade, he endeavored to change the subject, as if it were something he desired not to agitate. It seemed indeed as if everything connected with Toby was destined to beget distrust and anxiety in my bosom. Notwithstanding Marnu's denial of any knowledge of his fate, I could not avoid suspecting that he was deceiving me, and this suspicion revived those frightful apprehensions with regard to my own fate, which for a short time past had subsided in my breast. Influenced by these feelings, I now felt a strong desire to avail myself of the stranger's protection and under his safeguard to return to Nukahiva. But as soon as I hinted at this, he unhesitatingly pronounced it to be entirely impracticable, assuring me that the Taipees would never consent to my leaving the valley. Although what he said merely confirmed the impression which I had before entertained, still it increased my anxiety to escape from a captivity which, however endurable, nay, delightful, it might be in some respects, involved in its issues a fate marked by the most frightful contingencies. I could not conceal from my mind that Toby had been treated in the same friendly manner as I had been, and yet all their kindness had terminated in his mysterious disappearance. Might not the same fate await me, a fate too dreadful to think of? Stimulated by these considerations, I urged anew my request to Marnu, but he only set forth in stronger colors the impossibility of my escape, and repeated his previous declaration that the Taipees would never be brought to consent to my departure. When I endeavored to learn from him the motives which prompted them to hold me a prisoner, Marno again assumed that mysterious tone which had tormented me with apprehensions when I had questioned him with regard to the fate of my companion. Thus repulsed, in a manner which only served, by arousing the most dreadful forebodings, to excite me to renewed attempts, I conjured him to intercede for me with the natives, and endeavor to procure their consent to my leaving them. To this he appeared strongly averse, but, yielding at last to my importunities, he addressed several of the chiefs, who with the rest had been eyeing us intently during the whole of our conversation. His petition, however, was at once met with the most violent disapprobation, manifesting itself in angry glances and gestures, and a perfect torrent of passionate words, directed to both him and myself. Marnu, evidently repenting the step he had taken, earnestly deprecated the resentment of the crowd, and in a few moments succeeded in pacifying to some extent the clamors which had broken out as soon as his proposition had been understood. With the most intense interest had I watched the reception his intercession might receive, and a bitter pang shot through my heart at the additional evidence, now furnished, of the unchangeable determination of the islanders. Marnu told me, with evident alarm in his countenance, 
that although admitted into the bay on a friendly footing with its inhabitants, he could not presume to meddle with their concerns, as such a procedure, if persisted in, would at once absolve the Taipees from the restraints of the taboo. Although so long as he refrained from any such conduct, it screened him effectually from the consequences of the enmity they bore his tribe. At this moment, Mahavi, who was present, angrily interrupted him, and the words which he uttered, in a commanding tone, evidently meant that he must at once cease talking to me, and withdraw to the other part of the house. Marno immediately started up, hurriedly enjoining me not to address him again, and, as I valued my safety, to refrain from all further allusion to the subject of my departure. And then, in compliance with the order of the determined chief, but not before it had again been angrily repeated, he withdrew to a distance. I now perceived, with no small degree of apprehension, the same savage expression in the countenance of the natives which had startled me during the scene at the tea. They glanced their eyes, suspiciously from Marnu to me, as if distrusting the nature of an intercourse carried on as it was in a language they could not understand, and they seemed to harbor the belief that already we had concerted measures calculated to elude their vigilance. The lively countenances of these people are wonderfully indicative of the emotions of the soul, and the imperfections of their oral language are more than compensated for by the nervous eloquence of their looks and gestures. I could plainly trace in every varying expression of their faces all those passions which had been thus unexpectedly aroused in their bosoms. It required no reflection to convince me, from what was going on, that the injunction of Marnu was not to be rashly slighted, and accordingly, great as was the effort to suppress my feelings, I accosted Mahavi in a good-humoured tone, with a view of dissipating any ill impression he might have received. But the ireful, angry chief was not so easily mollified. He rejected my advances with that peculiarly stern expression I have before described, and took care by the whole of his behaviour towards me to show the displeasure and resentment which he felt. Marnu, at the other extremity of the house, apparently desirous of making a diversion in my favour, exerted himself to amuse with his pleasantries the crowd about him. But his lively attempts were not so successful as they had previously been, and, foiled in his efforts, he rose gravely to depart. No one expressed any regret at this movement, so seizing his roll of tapa, and grasping his spear, he advanced to the front of the peepee, and waving his hand in adieu to the now silent throng, cast upon me a glance of mingled pity and reproach, and flung himself into the path which led from the house. I watched his receding figure until it was lost in the obscurity of the grove, and then gave myself up to the most desponding reflections. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Michael Scherer. Typee by Herman Melville. Chapter 19 The knowledge I had now obtained as to the intention of the savages deeply affected me. 
Marno, I perceived, was a man who, by reason of his superior requirements, and the knowledge he possessed of the events which were taking place in the different bays of the island, was held in no little estimation by the inhabitants of the valley. He had been received with the most cordial welcome and respect. The natives had hung upon the accents of his voice, and had manifested the highest gratification at being individually noticed by him. And yet, despite all this, a few words urged in my behalf, with the intent of obtaining my release from captivity, had sufficed not only to banish all harmony and goodwill, but if I could believe what he told me, had gone nigh to endanger his own personal safety. How strongly rooted, then, must be the determination of the Taipees with regard to me, and how suddenly could they display the strangest passions. The mere suggestion of my departure had estranged from me, for the time at least, Mahavi, who was the most influential of all the chiefs, and who had previously exhibited so many instances of his friendly sentiments. The rest of the natives had likewise evinced their strong repugnance to my wishes, and even Cory Cory himself seemed to share in the general disapprobation bestowed upon me. In vain I racked my invention to find out some motive for the strange desire these people manifested to retain me among them, but I could discover none. But however this might be, the scene which had just occurred admonished me of the danger of trifling with the wayward and passionate spirits against whom it was vain to struggle, and might even be fatal to do so. My only hope was to induce the natives to believe that I was reconciled to my detention in the valley, and by assuming a tranquil and cheerful demeanor, to allay the suspicions which I had so unfortunately aroused. Their confidence revived they might in a short time remit in some degree their watchfulness over my movements, and I should then be the better enabled to avail myself of any opportunity which presented itself for escape. I determined, therefore, to make the best of a bad bargain, and to bear up manfully against whatever might betide. In this endeavor, I succeeded beyond my own expectations. At the period of Marnu's visit, I had been in the valley, as nearly as I could conjecture, some two months. Although not completely recovered from my strange illness which still lingered about me, I was free from pain and able to take exercise. In short, I had every reason to anticipate a perfect recovery. Freed from apprehensions on this point, and resolved to regard the future without flinching, I flung myself anew into all the social pleasures of the valley, and sought to bury all regrets and all remembrances of my previous existence in the wild enjoyments it afforded. In my various wanderings through the vale, and as I became better acquainted with the character of its inhabitants, I was more and more struck with the light-hearted joyousness that everywhere prevailed. The minds of these simple savages, unoccupied by matters of graver moment, were capable of deriving the utmost delight from circumstances which would have passed unnoticed in more intelligent communities. All their enjoyment, indeed, seemed to be made up of the little trifling incidents of the passing hour. But these diminutive items swelled altogether to an amount of happiness seldom experienced by more enlightened individuals, whose pleasures are drawn from more elevated but rarer sources. What community, for instance, of refined and intellectual mortals would derive the least satisfaction from shooting pop-guns, 
the mere supposition of such a thing being possible would excite their indignation. And yet the whole population of Taipee did little else for ten days but occupy themselves with that childish amusement, fairly screaming, too, with the delight it afforded them. One day I was frolicking with a little spirited urchin, some six years old, who chased me with a piece of bamboo about three feet long, with which he occasionally belabored me. Seizing the stick from him, the idea happened to suggest itself that I might make for the youngster, out of the slender tube, one of those nursery muskets with which I had sometimes seen children playing. Accordingly, with my knife, I made two parallel slits in the cane several inches in length, and cutting loose at one end the elastic strip between them, bent it back and slipped the point into a little notch made for the purpose. Any small substance placed against this would be projected with considerable force through the tube, by merely springing the bent strip out of the notch. Had I possessed the remotest idea of the sensation this piece of ordnance was destined to produce, I should certainly have taken out a patent for the invention. The boy scampered away with it, half delirious with ecstasy, and in twenty minutes afterwards I might have been seen surrounded by a noisy crowd, venerable old greybeards, responsible fathers of families, valiant warriors, matrons, young men, girls and children, all holding in their hands bits of bamboo, and each clamoring to be served first. For three or four hours I was engaged in manufacturing pop-guns, but at last made over my goodwill and interest in the concern to a lad of remarkable quick parts, whom I soon initiated into the art and mystery. Pop, 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 now resounded all over the valley. Duels, skirmishes, pitched battles, and general engagements were to be seen on every side. Here, as you walked along a path which led through a thicket, you fell into a cunningly laid ambush, and became a target for a body of musketeers, whose tattooed limbs you could just see peeping into view through the foliage. There you were assailed by the intrepid garrison of a house, who leveled their bamboo rifles at you from between the upright canes which composed its sides. Farther on you were fired upon by a detachment of sharpshooters, mounted upon the top of a peepee. Pop, 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 pop! Green guavas, seeds, and berries were flying about in every direction, and during this dangerous state of affairs I was half afraid that, like the man and his brazen bull, I should fall a victim to my own ingenuity. Like everything else, however, the excitement gradually wore away, though ever after occasional pop-guns might be heard at all hours of the day. It was towards the close of the pop-gun war that I was infinitely diverted with a strange freak of Marheyo's. I had worn, when I quitted the ship, a pair of thick pumps, which, from the rough usage they had received in scaling precipices and sliding down gorges, were so dilapidated as to be altogether unfit for use. So at least would have thought the generality of people, and so they most certainly were, when considered in the light of shoes. But things unserviceable in one way, may with advantage be applied in another, that is, if one have genius enough for the purpose. This genius Marheyo possessed in a superlative degree, as he abundantly evinced by the use to which he put these sorely bruised and battered old shoes. Every article, however trivial, which belonged to me, 
the natives appeared to regard as sacred, and I observed that for several days after becoming an inmate of the house, my pumps were suffered to remain untouched where I had first happened to throw them. I remembered, however, that after a while I had missed them from their accustomed place, but the matter gave me no concern, supposing that Tinor, like any other tidy housewife, having come across them in some of her domestic occupations, had pitched the useless things out of the house. But I was soon undeceived. One day I observed old Marheyo bustling about me with unusual activity, and to such a degree as almost to supersede Cory Cory in the functions of his office. One moment he volunteered to trot off with me on his back to the stream, and when I refused, no ways daunted by the repulse, he continued to frisk about me like a superannuated house-dog. I could not for the life of me conjecture what possessed the old gentleman, until all at once, availing himself of the temporary absence of the household, he went through a variety of uncouth gestures, pointing eagerly down to my feet, and then up to a little bundle which swung from the ridge-pole overhead. At last I caught a faint idea of his meaning, and motioned him to lower the package. He executed the order on the twinkling of an eye, and unrolling a piece of tapa, displayed to my astonished gaze the identical pumps which I thought had been destroyed long before. I immediately comprehended his desires, and very generously gave him the shoes, which had become quite moldy wondering for what earthly purpose he could want them. The same afternoon I descried the venerable warrior approaching the house, with a slow, stately gait, earrings in ears, and spear in hand, with this highly ornamental pair of shoes suspended from his neck by a strip of bark, and swinging backwards and forwards on his capacious chest. In the gala costume of the tasteful Marheyo, these calfskin pendants ever after formed the most striking feature. But to turn to something a little more important, although the whole existence of the inhabitants of the valley seemed to pass away exempt from toil, yet there were some light employments, which, although amusing rather than laborious as occupations, contributed to their comfort and luxury. Among these, the most important was the manufacture of the native cloth, tapa, so well known under various modifications throughout the whole Polynesian archipelago. As is generally understood, this useful and sometimes elegant article is fabricated from the bark of different trees. But as I believe that no description of its manufacture has ever been given, I shall state what I know regarding it. In the manufacture of the beautiful white tapa generally worn on the Marquesan Islands, the preliminary operation consists in gathering a certain quantity of the young branches of the cloth tree. The exterior green bark being pulled off as worthless, there remains a slender, fibrous substance, which is carefully stripped from the stick, to which it closely adheres. When a sufficient quantity of it has been collected, the various strips are enveloped in a covering of large leaves, which the natives use precisely as we do wrapping paper, and which are secured by a few turns of a line passed round them. The package is then laid in the bed of some running stream, with a heavy stone placed over it to prevent its being swept away. After it has remained for two or three days in this state, it is drawn out and exposed for a short time to the action of the air, every distinct piece being attentively inspected, 
with a view of ascertaining whether it has yet been sufficiently affected by the operation. This is repeated again and again, until the desired result is obtained. When the substance is in a proper state for the next process, it betrays evidences of incipient decomposition. The fibers are relaxed and softened, and rendered perfectly malleable. The different strips are now extended, one by one, in successive layers upon some smooth surface, generally the prostrate trunk of a coconut tree, and the heap thus formed is subjected at every new increase to a moderate beating, with a sort of wooden mallet, leisurely applied. The mallet is made of a hard, heavy wood resembling ebony, is about twelve inches in length and perhaps two in breadth, with a rounded handle at one end, and in shape is the exact counterpart of one of our four-sided razor strops. The flat surfaces of the implement are marked with shallow parallel indentations, varying in depth on the different sides, so as to be adapted to the several stages of the operation. These marks produce the corduroy sort of stripes discernible in the tapa in its finished state. After being beaten in the manner I have described, the material soon becomes blended in one mass, which, moistened occasionally with water, is at intervals hammered out by a kind of gold-beating process to any degree of thinness required. In this way, the cloth is easily made to vary in strength and thickness, so as to suit the numerous purposes to which it is applied. When the operation last described has been concluded, the new-made tapa is spread out on the grass to bleach and dry, and soon becomes of a dazzling whiteness. Sometimes, in the first stages of the manufacture, the substance is impregnated with a vegetable juice, which gives it a permanent color. A rich brown and a bright yellow are occasionally seen, but the simple taste of the Taipei people inclines them to prefer the natural tint. The notable wife of Kamehameha, the renowned conqueror and king of the Sandwich Islands, used to pride herself in the skill she displayed in dyeing her tapa with contrasting colors disposed in regular figures, and, in the midst of the innovations of the times, was regarded, towards the decline of her life, as a lady of the old school, clinging as she did to the national cloth in preference to the frippery of the European calicoes. But the art of printing the tapa is unknown upon the Marquesan Islands. In passing along the valley, I was often attracted by the noise of the mallet, which, when employed in the manufacture of the cloth, produces at every stroke of its hard, heavy wood a clear, ringing, and musical sound, capable of being heard at a great distance. When several of these implements happen to be in operation at the same time, and near one another, the effect upon the ear of a person, at a little distance, is really charming. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun? Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.